0: Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Colossians as we continue along in our study this morning, where we'll be looking at verses 15 through 22 in chapter 1. Throughout the New Testament, there are what's known by, in in the world of scholars, there are four major Christological passages that exist. And it is from these four passages that exist within the New Testament that we glean quite a bit of information and facts and doctrine and understanding about who Jesus is. And who Jesus is to us this morning, it is, it's everything. How we perceive him, how we know him to be, who we understand him to be. And so Paul addresses the church in Colossae, who was confused about who Jesus was. And that group of folks known as the Gnostics had come in and they began to undermine the deity of Jesus. And they began to preach and teach a false doctrine. And so Paul begins to address each of these issues one by one. And so if you would, pay attention with me and read along as I begin in verse 15 where God's word says to us this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him." This is the word of the Lord for us today. Several months ago, the Barna study group had sent out a poll where they began to ask millennials and they asked Gen Z and they even asked Gen X, who do they think Jesus was? One of the questions that was noteworthy in this moment is they asked the question, how many of you think that Jesus was actually sinless? How many of you believe that he he really was perfect, perhaps as as you've been taught in in your Bible study classes or have heard, and and the numbers that sort of came back in, polling non-Christians and Christians, bringing them all together, in particular for Gen Z, those born between 1997 and 2012, nearly 40% of Gen Z adults believed that Jesus was not sinless. That he wasn't perfect. Now when I saw that, that was striking to me until I began to work myself backwards through the report. And I began to find that millennials, those born between 1981 and 1985, the numbers weren't that far off from them. Only 37% of them believed the same. On to Gen X where it goes to 35% and what we see is this trajectory over the years that as our kids get younger and those who were brought up and born into this world, fewer and fewer of them actually believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. Now it begs the question for us this morning, what are the implications for that in our understanding of who Jesus was? For if Jesus was not perfect and he was not who he says he was, then then doesn't this undermine the very heart that Jesus would proclaim that he was God? It undermines his deity, it undermines his sufficiency, it undermines his ability to save us and to reconcile us to all things because, therefore, if he wasn't perfect and and did not live a sinless, blameless life, then his death on that cross was meaningless and it had no power. To atone for your sins and to atone for mine. Scholars believe that in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 22, Paul is most likely here quoting a hymn that was sung within the early church. And in this hymn that exists here, it gives us a very clear depiction of who Jesus is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through verse by verse and then we'll tie it all together towards the end with some application on if these things are true as God proclaims in his word, then how does it affect us? Paul begins in verse 15 where he makes the statement, he is, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If we look at the latter half of that statement, the invisible God, we know that God is spirit elsewhere throughout scripture. We, we see this. No human eye can, can understand and, and to see him here in this moment. So how is it that God can be known? How is it that God can be perceived? Well, the answer to that invisibility idea that God is spirit and that we cannot see, the answer to that lies in the beginning of verse 15 where it says, He, namely Jesus, He is the the icon, He is the image, He is the representation of God. Much like you would see on a, on a coin, you would see the face of a former president. They're, they're, they're the icon that exists there, the representation there in that moment. And you may say, well, wait a minute, isn't man made in the image of God as well? And we would answer that. We would say, yes, according to Genesis, we are created in the Imago day." But Paul means something different here. To say that we as a people are made in the image of God means that we can only really resemble him in certain ways. In other words, he gives us our personalities. He gives us a way to reason and to rationalize in our thinking. He makes us relational just as he is and he designs us for community. But Jesus being the image of the invisible God, he is the exact and the precise representation of God, the exact impression of him all that God is Jesus is if Jesus were not fully God then he would not be the exact representation that it claims here in this moment he is the image of the invisible God Jesus is the image of God theologians Came up with a, a word many years ago that doesn't actually exist within our Bible, but verse 15 alludes to, and it's the idea and the doctrine of what we understand as the doctrine of the Trinity. And when we speak about the doctrine of the Trinity, what we are talking about is it means that God has existed eternally in in three persons. He's not three gods, which would be polytheism. He is not a God who puts on different hats at different times, which is known as modalism. And, And he's not a God that is subdivided into certain equal parts. Which is why you have to be careful with analogies on the Trinity, such as dad and pastor friend and and all of the, the creative ways that we can try to explain how it is that God exists. But fundamentally, what we do know to be true and accurate is that the doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is one in essence, yet three in person. Each person is fully God, but yet there is only one God. We see John echo elsewhere in the beginning of John 1, 1, where he says this truth about Christ in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Early church historians and church fathers often describe this concept in in this way. The father is like the mind that conceives the thought. The word is the expression of that thought, and the spirit is the voice that carries the thought along. He says this Jesus, being the image of the invisible God, he is the firstborn over all creation. And oftentimes when we see the word firstborn, we will often ask, what does this mean? And it can really mean two things. It can mean that Jesus was created, but, but we know that Jesus was not created, for he was there in the beginning and all things were created for him and, and through him. we know from John 1 that in the beginning was the word and the word was God. So what does this word, what does this phrase firstborn mean? Well, it doesn't just mean order of birth, though that is true, yet it has another meaning oftentimes when we see it throughout the Scripture, and it means a position of inheritance. It means a position that Jesus occupies by virtue of who he is. We see this in the Old Testament with men such as Isaac when he called Abraham's firstborn and, and technically Ishmael was the firstborn, but Isaac was the one who got the position and he was the one that received all the promises. We see this in Jacob and in Esau, the order in which they come does not mean necessarily the position of the prominence that exists within that person. So Jesus therefore is the firstborn over all creation. It most certainly and most literally is speaking about a position that he occupies. He goes on and he talks about Jesus creating all these things in heaven and on earth, and and if Jesus was created, then then it means that in this moment, if, if Jesus was created, if there was a time when Jesus was not. Where he was brought into existence, then then how can he be the one that creates all of these other things? The the one who is created is creating himself, and, and we know that logically is a fallacy and it doesn't make sense. Why? Because we know that there was never a time when Jesus was not. And so, Jesus is in the position in this moment that Paul's reminding them of the firstborn. That all of creation was made by him and all of creation was made for him. That everything that you see, everything that you touch, everything that you engage in, the person to your right and to your left, to the front of you and behind you, they were made for him. You were made for him to live for his glory to live for his kingdom, to live for his namesake. You are displaying, in essence, the, the beauty of who God is, the, the, the way that he functions as father and son and spirit. You, you embody that community there in yourself as the spirit indwells dwells in you. You occupy alongside him in many ways for those who have called upon his name this position of great importance because there is purpose in your life that only he can give being married to an artist or a creative, if you will. Anytime Haley designs something or paints something, anytime that she makes something, there's a little piece of of her that exists within that artwork. And she learned this from her dad many years ago, who who also was an artist and and an avid painter. An artist will say that every great work of art, there is a piece of the soul of the artist that exists in the art that we look at. And you can get to know the the artist that you you look at his artwork by examining the work and and seeing what it is that that they did. You see, creation is, is just like this. The heavens declare the glory of our God. The mountains and the rivers, the oceans and the trees and the flowers, all of those things are pointing to the fact that they have been created, that they have been made, and they are pointing to this God who occupies, who is the firstborn over all creation. Augustine, one of the greatest theological minds, perhaps outside of the apostle Paul, famously said that all of creation is God's smile towards us. They are good gifts that draw us to him. They shout his glory and they speak about who he is and his worthiness before us. Jesus, this firstborn over all creation. Look with me at verse 17 where it goes on and he says, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. In other words, to say it differently, Paul is saying that he is the ground of our being That the reason why you, your breath sustains in this moment, the, the reason why your heart still beats in this very moment is because he is holding it all together. He is the one that is making it all work. He is the one that is restraining, he is the one that is giving, he is the one that is taking, he is the one that holds all things together. One theologian put it this way in trying to explain verse 17. And he tells a story and and really a story of of our own history back in the day when physicists uh, really couldn't figure out how an atom actually holds together. The nucleus of the common oxygen atom has eight protons which have a positive charge. And usually in the midst of that atom, those that have similar charges, they actually repel each other and they they fly apart or they should fly apart But within these eight protons with a positive charge and these eight neurons that exist there with no charge. And yet, when they began to look at the inside of this atom and began able to see these eight positively charged protons, they were just hanging out together. They weren't being repelled by one another, and the negative elements were flying around, spinning around the atom. And in the 1920s and the 1930s, they discovered this incredible power that lurked there holding all of the protons and the nucleus of the atom together. They figured out in that moment how to split that atom and create this overwhelming force of, of energy that they, they knew was there, but they couldn't explain it, and they still don't quite understand it. Yet it was there the whole time, holding it all together. Now I know we may have scientists and physicists that understand this concept quite better than I do, and I'm not saying there's not a natural or a physical principle there built into it that keeps it all together, but what I am saying, it's just as there is this mysterious power, this invisible power behind the atom, there is this mysterious power in all of the universe's being that gives it and us life. His hand is on everything. It's in you and it's his power and it's his joy. It's the thing that puts longing deep within your heart to seek and to know God and to understand him. It's the longing that exists there to go and and to tell those that are far from him about the goodness that God has reconciled us through Christ. Because the truth is our lives will fall apart if Jesus is not the center of it all. If the gospel is not all within our life, the life and the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus must be the center of it all. Verse 18 goes on and he says, and he, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. A couple of things are noteworthy there in this moment in verse 18, it says, he is the head of the body, he is the head of the church. As many of you know, as we announced last week and talked this past Wednesday at our members meeting about our new process that we're engaging in and calling new elders and having elders rotate off in accordance with our bylaws. And oftentimes the motivation in the midst of churches and calling elders and putting men in place is this idea somewhere in the midst of that, that if I can just nominate the right guy to get in the right place, that that things will change. If I can make him the top dog or the CEO or, or whoever, whatever that position is. And friends, I think this is a healthy reminder for us today that there is only one head of this church and his name is Jesus. And we elders serve under his authority. We serve under his leadership as the congregation recognizes those things. He is our head and our goal is just simply to be faithful to him, to exhibit biblical faithfulness, to apply wisdom in the the black areas, in the white areas, and, and even in the gray areas when they come our way. To apply the wisdom that he gives, that he holds all things together, and that our church And this location was created for him and by him for a purpose, to serve and to see those that are far from him come to know him. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. Oftentimes we get hooked up on, or caught up on that little phrase. What does it mean to be the firstborn from the dead? That in everything he might be preeminent. He is the firstborn, it's all by him, it's all for him, it's all about him, he was there at the beginning, he writes the story in the middle, and he will be there at the end. Firstborn from the dead just simply means that in Jesus we get a glimpse of what we in creation will be in the future. And I think one of the ways to understand this is to understand what it was that Jesus was like before the resurrection. He's described elsewhere in scripture as a man of sorrow. He, he wasn't uh, good to look at. He wasn't athletic. He was sort of a, a sorry looking picture of a man, if you will, is the way that the Bible describes it, my paraphrase. He wasn't attractive. He, he couldn't have been like King Saul in the Old Testament. He wasn't anything like those things. Yet when he culminates his life's work here in that moment and is resurrected in glory with his glorified state, the scripture begins to describe him in other ways. He becomes beautiful. That he has abilities then in that moment that he didn't have before. He, he appears to just walk through walls at times and he confronts the apostles and the disciples in those moments. And so what we see here in this moment, the firstborn from the dead, I think is there to point us to this idea of what it will be like for us in the future. He is the first, but there will be others after him. He is the one that has made the promise to uh, bring and rise our bodies, to meet us in the air when he returns and to make us like him. He was physically resurrected as a man who ate and conversed with friends and, and walked through walls. We see in Jesus in this moment what God is making us to be, how he's changing us. And unfortunately, this side of heaven, oftentimes that change uh, comes with with scars and it comes with suffering. It can come with persecution. It can come with heartache and despair. It can come with fear oftentimes. But in this moment, what Paul is doing is he's reminding the church that he, Jesus, he is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might be above all things. That he might be superior above all things, that he might be first and foremost in all things, that we would spend our lives and our labor and our tears and our sweat and our blood and our resources and our money, and we would labor for him because he is above everything. He is our priority. He is our focus in all that we do. Verse 19 goes on and it says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's not a God pie of three equal parts, but in each one of the fullness, the other two dwells. One God, yet three persons. It is indeed a mystery, uh, but Paul's point is as Christ dwells in you, the fullness of God dwells in you as well. Verse 20 goes on and he says, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I find this striking here in this moment. Haley and I were talking and walking through this passage the other day as we, as we walked. And I said, one of the things that, that I've never noticed that existed here in this moment, in these, in these verses that were here, was how long Paul labors in making much of Christ and his character and who he is. And he spends uh, 75% of this section speaking about who Jesus is. And what it means for, for the church and, and before he ever gets to this place where he turns it around and he, and he looks back at you and he says, the reason why he is all of these things and he is this great and, and grand and, and he is this glorious, the reason is, is because through him to reconcile himself to you, to me. He goes on in verse 21, and he says, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Several months ago, I had a college student that came up to me after our second service. And he said, pastor, can I talk to you for a moment? I, I got some things in my life that I just need to confess. And, and I wanna know if you, can, if you can help me. I got some struggles and some things that I'm, that I'm just dealing with. And I said, sure, let's come over here. And we sat down and we began to talk. And he began to, to walk through all of the particular obstacles that were in his way, all of the internal struggles that existed within his heart. And, and, he, and he asked me a, a very simple question. He said, what scriptures can you give me that will help me in this moment? And I said, well, well, tell me why you would ask that question in that particular way. He said, well, if I can just internalize the word of God in my, in my heart, I, I know there's got to be some scriptures that speak to, to these issues because I want to I wanna overcome these things and I, and I want to get past these things. And, and so what is it and where in the Bible uh, does it tell me how to overcome these things? And so I listed off uh, just a few, but, but I said to him, I said, my friend, uh, the word of God is sufficient, it is authoritative, but, but you're going to miss the mark here in this moment if you don't listen to these words. You see, right now, you're caught up right now with just really you and, and your issues and your struggles. And, and I'm here to tell you that God cares deeply about your issues and He cares deeply about your struggles. In fact, He knows every single one of the, of the things that you have told me and confessed today and, and He knows the ones that you'll confess tomorrow. But, but can I tell you that your answer for godliness is not just going through a checklist of righteousness, but rather your answer for godliness is that you would become infatuated and deeply in love with the person of Jesus, and that you would spend your your time and your understanding trying to know who he is and understand him better, that that if you want to manage your sin, if you will, if you want to deal with that sin and overcome with that sin, the answer is not in a magic formula, but rather the answer is in a person. And So you study him and you seek to know him. You don't just seek the facts that exist about who Jesus is, but you enter into that intimacy and that relationship that exists from walking with him faithfully, and you spend your time and and your labor and your talent and your effort. Not that those scriptures won't help. They can be a piece to the puzzle, but the answer is and always is Jesus. He said, well, I'm in an accountability group and we, we confess our sins and we do the things that the Bible says. And I said, that's fantastic because we need community. But one of the ways that groups like that sort of get off is they begin to focus most of their conversation on their sin and less of it on the person of Jesus. And I think what Paul does here in this moment is he models that for us. And he talks over and over and reiterates over and over, this is who God is. Become immersed in that and become infatuated with that and long to know him more. And then he says, Oh, by the way, he is all these things because you who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing these evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order that he would present you someday holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Amen. He is all those things to us so that. He can reconcile us to himself and change us and present us as a holy and a a sanctified people. So if all these things are true about Christ and who he is, what are the implications for us today as a church? I'll just make our, draw our attention just to several very briefly. Number one is this, if who Christ is, if we understand rightly who he is, who Christ is, it should change the way that we worship. It should change the way that we worship. And I'm not talking about just spirit-filled rooms on, on Sunday morning. I'm talking about the lifestyle that we live, the way we engage, our, our worship. We offer our bodies as these living sacrifices, as Paul says. It means that we are a people that have a heart for other people. We are a people that understand that other people that are far from him, they are our mission. It's why we go to places like Lebanon, like we'll see in just a few moments as we commission a group to go off. It's why we go to places like Spain and Portugal. It's why we go to the uttermost parts of the world. It's why we go a door down the street in our neighborhood and know our neighbors so that we can worship, so that we can live on mission with him. You see, if we understand rightly who Christ is, it not only changes our worship, but it also changes our desires. We begin to realize this profound truth that maybe some of us have forgot here this morning, but maybe the chief offender is the man behind this pulpit, is that life, it's not about you. It's ultimately not about our dreams and our wants and our own ambitions, but rather the dreams and the wants and the ambitions that God has for us. The purpose and the plan that that he has, that, that we would be the people that God has called us to be. Who Christ is, it changes our desires. It changes our wants. It makes us want to live on mission. Who Christ is, it changes our objectives in life. It makes us realize this profound truth that his kingdom is more important than mine. That his kingdom is more important than yours. And lastly and finally, if we understand rightly who Christ is and all these things that he is preeminent and above and he is superior in all of these things, who Christ is, it changes our church. That's why our mission is simple, to see people far from God come to know Christ. Our vision and who we want to become is we want to be a sending church that sends out disciples into Fort Worth and the state of Texas and the uttermost parts of the world that that have a gospel calling on their life, that understand that they have been sent by God to live on mission by God and for God. It changes who we are as a church. It makes us rally around that core value of, of just simply wanting to be biblically faithful in all of the things that we do. That we want to bring honor to our king because he is worthy of that honor. In fact, he is the only one that is worthy of that honor. Who Christ is changes our church. It makes us realize that the focus should never be on us, but on him. As we make much of him and as we proclaim him and as we preach him, as we pray to him and as we seek him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for... The word that you give us that is authoritative over our life, it speaks to us today, it changes us It helps us walk with you faithfully. Mm -hmm. So Father, I pray that for your church this morning that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that because of these things and who you have revealed yourself to be according to your word, Father, I pray that it would change us and move us, that it would send us on mission for you. So Father, would we be filled with the fruit of your spirit, would you give us the love and the joy, the peace and the patience, the kindness, the goodness and the gentleness that comes with walking faithfully with you. So Father, would you help us embody that in those truths today, for I pray in Christ's name and God's people said.